A large church in Burnsville has advertised its presence in the community with a bumper sticker. It bears the name of the church and then this slogan, Belong, Believe, Become. Now, systematic theologians pay careful attention to what they call the ordo salutis, a Latin phrase referring to the proper order of the various aspects of our salvation. So, for instance, what is the proper order in which to place effectual calling, regeneration, conversion, justification, perseverance, these types of things? In a similar vein, I think the bumper sticker announces a certain order to one's relationship with a local church. By placing belong before believe, and I think that's not an accident, I think it's done to make a point. By placing belong before believe, the suggestion is that one may belong to a local church before he or she believes in the gospel and grows spiritually. Now, there is something appealing in that order. Jesus taught us that the world will see in our love for one another and in our good deeds the reality of our life in Christ. What better place for unbelievers to see love and good deeds on display than in the context of our life together as a local church? And so we say, bring them in. Let them see. Bring them among us. Living together as the body of Christ, we should welcome sinners among us and live so as to attract them to the wonder of the gospel. Our doors are wide open. Indeed, we rejoice to point to a number of adult members of our church who have lived for a time among us before they trusted Christ as Savior and followed Him in believer's baptism. And we rejoice in that. That is good and right. But we must never lose sight of this revealed truth. The church of Jesus Christ is a covenantal community of regenerate people. The church itself is comprised of those who know Christ as their Savior. The local church is to include only those who have been saved. Now when I say that, I don't mean only in attendance. We'll get to that later. But the local church is to include only those who have been saved. People once condemned by God as sinners, rescued from that state, cleansed by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, through saving faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are the people that are part of the church. Now this is a rather basic concept for us as an assembly, isn't it? We can call this sort of Ecclesiology 101. We understand that it is believers who are to be part of the local church. And we can go very simply from here and take this for granted. Of course the church is comprised only of believers. But somebody enters in and says, wait a minute, Eden Baptist Church. How do you know who is really saved? Is there a halo over their head? Does their nose glow? How do you know who's really saved? 
How do you know there aren't unbelievers in your membership? In fact, wouldn't you admit that there probably are some members of your church who are not genuinely saved? And our thoughts go pretty quickly to some who have been in our membership and realized they weren't saved. You, Eden Baptist, cannot control or even ultimately know the order of belonging and believing. So why try to play God by insisting on a regenerate church membership? Let's just let that objection hang in the air for a bit. And I want to bring alongside of it two poles of response to this matter. We don't land, I'll say, up front in either one, but let's just lay them out. On the one hand are those traditions that say belonging to a church is salvation. Belonging is believing. A person who willingly attends Mass and willingly receives the Lord's Supper, that person is a Christian. Now, crucial to this view, it only works this way, is if you believe that Jesus gave His church the authority to dispense grace, dispense salvation, and to forgive sins. But if you believe that, which many who claim the name of Christ do believe, if you believe that, then you believe, you will believe, that participation in the church is salvation. Why? Believing that, would you ever want to say to anyone, you don't belong to this church? That would be denying them salvation. Now, on the other hand, the far other pole, are those who believe that the individual's faith relationship with Christ is all important. The local church is a collection of believers whose interest is primarily on personal piety, individualistic loyalty to Christ. It's all about my relationship with God. For these Christians, believing is everything. Belonging is entirely optional. I can move from church to church or to not go to church at all because I know that I have trusted Christ as my Savior. But belonging to a church, that's, that's just not all that important because we don't really know who belongs to the true church anyway all i know is that i do you see these two poles very different approaches now what i'd like us to do at this point is to work through several biblical texts asking the question does the bible teach that the local church is to be made up of believers only that it is to comprise believers only now we're going to have to leave the tension of what about unbelievers among us for the end just hold on to that thought and to also hold these two poles out there of belonging is salvation or believing is all that matters and belonging doesn't let's just leave all of that there in the back of our minds and let's move then to what we know that's always the joy, isn't it? To come back to Scripture and say, here's what the Bible teaches. We may not know how to work through all of these issues, but we know what the Bible says. I trust then as we do this that we will deepen the roots of our convictions on this matter and also see clearly on the relationship and importance of belonging and believing. 
Let's go to Acts chapter 2. A text we've read already, but remembering the context, the festival of Pentecost following Jesus' ascension, the baptism of the Spirit as the ascended Christ pours out His Spirit upon His followers. Peter preaches to the masses. The audience are all Jews, and they are intrigued by the supernatural effects of the Spirit's baptism, of the Spirit baptism by Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter then comes to the heart of his sermon, to its particular appeal and the imperative as he says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, as these have. Notice here that his appeal is to the individual. The individual must repent of sin and be baptized individually as a statement that I embrace Messiah as my Savior. In verse 41, we see that response. Verse 41 of Acts 2, So those who received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now let's think on this idea. All of these who respond to Peter's message are Jews. Individuals who were participants in the old covenant relationship between God and Israel. Yet, those who respond to the gospel are added to the new community of Messiah's followers. They're not just seen as Jews who understand what Christ has done. Who have embraced the new covenant or something along those lines. They are distinguished as a subset of Israel from those who reject Messiah, or at least at this point have not embraced Him as Savior. To this distinct subset of followers of the Lord, we read at the end of this chapter, verse 47, the second half of the verse, that the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That is, those who were repenting, following Christ in baptism, all that we find there in verse 38. Chapter 4 and verse 4, we see a very similar phrase as the additions continue. Chapter 4 and verse 4, But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. Now notice this. They were not saved because they were added They were added because they were saved. They were not called first to identify with the church. They were called first to repent and be baptized as individuals and then added to the church. I may speak to someone here today and you say, this talk of the forgiveness of sin. Listen, I would point you to Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. If there is a desire in your heart to have your sins forgiven, you need to grab this verse and know that this is the heart of the matter. To realize who you are, who Jesus Christ is, to turn from your sin and identify with His work, there is in the work of Christ forgiveness. That's where it's at. Now from these primitive moments in the history of the church, as these individuals respond to this message of salvation in Christ and are washed clean of their sin, 
we move ahead to consider the Apostle Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. I'd like you to turn there, if you will, and watch carefully how he describes the spiritual condition of the Ephesian church. Again, we have here Ecclesiology 101. This is very obvious, but I don't know a better book to go to to establish this fact that as Paul looked at the church, therefore, through inspiration of the Spirit, how God looks at the church, he sees that the church is comprised of genuine believers. This will come out fairly clearly, and we understand this, of course. But Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, he writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He writes to whom? To the saints. That is, people chosen out of the world, cleansed from sin, and dedicated to the holy purposes of God. He writes to the faithful. What does that mean? Their lives have been reoriented toward fidelity to God. They are in Christ. That is, they are now united by faith to the Savior. Verse 2, he says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Note the words, God our Father. The believers at Ephesus did far more than identify with the visible church. He's not saying you who attend the church of Jesus Christ, but to those who share the same Father. They had been adopted by God. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, you are in Christ, you are identified with Him. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. His standing has become your standing. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. You are one with Jesus. Verse 4, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing, chosen by God to be holy, blameless, distinctive in this world. In love, verse 5 says, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Once again, we see here the family connection. We are the children of God. And we are chosen in Christ and predestined before time to be holy and blameless as God's children. How did the saints at Ephesus come to this status? We take this, and I use the phrase there, we, but just looking at the Ephesian believers, how did they come to this place? In Christ, faithful saints, seated with Him, chosen by God for holiness. How did they get there? Chapter 2. Chapter 2, we have in verse 1 and following... A 10-verse sentence. The main point doesn't sound until verse 5 unless your translation is cheating and has some italicized words at the beginning. And it, it, It's hard. It's difficult. You don't get to the point until verse 5. In fact, there's sentences that don't finish in all of this. this it's a grammatical nightmare, which William Barclay has put it, I think, the best of anybody I've ever seen. It. He says, Paul is pouring out his heart and the claims of grammar have to give way to the wonder of grace. Beautiful, isn't it? That's what's happening here. What does he say? 
in this ecstatic speech, as he thinks of these Ephesian believers, he says, you were dead in trespasses and sins. You had no life. You walked in these sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the flesh and the mind. And we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We all start there. We all start as the children of Satan, dancing to his tune, We may not know it, but we are. Embracing the mindset of the world and living in slavery to fleshly passions. The Ephesian believers were once by nature the objects of God's just anger against sin because in everything they thought, in everything that they did, it was all enmeshed with this sinful orientation and this desire to serve self. And you notice that nothing that they did. Nothing that they were motivated God to save them or to save us. It is God's mercy that rescues us from His righteous anger and identifies us with the risen Christ. So, verse 19, you then are no longer strangers and aliens. You see it? This is what you were. You're not that any longer. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Let's flesh that out a little better. At verse 4, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Something radical had happened to them. They lived like everyone else, but God intervened. And now they were His children. Amazing grace. Ephesians 4. As members of this body of Christ, he continues and writes and says, Chapter 4, verse 15, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head into Christ. So Paul pictures the Ephesian believers as members of the body of Christ. Jesus is the head. Now notice this and go back to our two poles. Think on verse 16. From whom, that is from the head Christ, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. What is that saying? As members of the body of Christ, they are to function within that body such that the body matures in love. A life of love being the opposite of the sensual, self-centered life they once lived. Once they were driven by their own sensual passions to live for self. But now, having been saved, we join together in a body that builds itself up in love. This verse deals a pretty significant blow to the Christian who says it's all about believing. It's not about belonging. Because Paul is saying here, listen, 
Jesus chose you from eternity past for holiness. That holiness is to be lived out within a body of believers where working together in love, you build one another up in the faith. It's believing and belonging. That's God's intention. So in his eyes, no one is saved because they belong to the church. People belong to a church because they are saved. Secondly, those who believe do belong. The Christian faith is not an individualistic affair of private piety. It's intended to be lived out in community. And thirdly, let's just say it very simply and rejoice in the truth that we know. The local church is comprised of genuine believers. It is a regenerate body in the eyes of God. This is not just a theme here in the book of Ephesians. Paul writes to the Roman believers in chapter 6, when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Well, isn't that a great condition? No. Let me ask you this, says Paul, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? You lived in sin. You were free, you thought, from God's law. Where did it get you? The only thing you did in freedom from God's law brings shame to you now. The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free, there it is, but now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end is eternal life. Once this, now this. To the Corinthians, he says, and we could just use this as a text, very simply, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. You see, it's the same thing. If you're the church at Corinth, you're those sanctified in Christ Jesus. The church at Corinth and those sanctified, I think, are synonymous. Now this reality, we're going to cheat just a little bit here on this series. And I'd like you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because I'd like to come back to this text and really soak in it at a much greater length. But it helps us tremendously here to drive home this point. If you're saying, I'm, I'm still not totally there, I'm still on the edge, I'm still listening, look at this passage. We'll come back to it, God willing. But this reality that the church is comprised of believers is made very clear in, the, in this context of church discipline. In this context, we have a man living in perverse sexual sin. We won't get the whole context, but we'll just pick up at verse 9. And I want you, as we work through this, please, if you will, look at the distinction. The distinctions that are drawn between believers and unbelievers, and between believers and those living in unrepentant sin. Verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Now, Corinthians, get the point here. I'm not talking, verse 10, at all about the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers, idolaters, and people like that. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. I mean, you need to take a spaceship and exit, if I meant that. They're going to be everywhere in the world. That's the world we live in. That's the world where you're an evangelist. That's the world you inhabit. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's what I mean. Verse 11. I'm now writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. 
If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunker, swindler, these kinds of things, not even to eat with such a one. It seems fairly severe, doesn't it? But notice what he's saying. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Do you see the two circles here? There's the circle of those outside the assembly who are separated from Christ, and there's the circle of those inside the assembly who are believers in Christ. What's the problem with this man living in unrepentant sin? He's living like he's outside, but he's inside. I don't want you to go across to your neighbor and to hold them to account for their sin as such. You may certainly have a discussion with them. It may lead to witness, but that's not the point. We're not here to clean up everybody's sin that's an unbeliever. We're to bring them to salvation in Christ. But when you have someone who comes into the assembly, who belongs to it and identifies with it, and they are living in unrepentant sin, you need to move them into the circle where they're living. They're living as an unbeliever. You see here how essential it is to distinguish between those who are living as believers and those who are living as the world. Not calling you to separate from the world. That's the people we reach to bring them in. But if someone's in, but in heart is out, put them out. You can't really get around the implications of this text. Those in the church are to be regenerate and they're to live like it. And the church is to love them enough to say, if they're not living like it, you're not living like it. That could mean that you don't belong. And so we're going to set you out until there is repentance and evidence that you do genuinely know Christ. That wasn't my idea. That's not Eden Baptist doctrine. That's the biblical text. And when we bring ourselves in line with it, it's going to steer and direct us in certain ways. When a member of the church begins to live like a member of the world, we are to, what does it say at the end of verse 13? God judges those outside, but you are to purge the evil person from among you. Place them outside of the assembly, and thus to love them and call them to repentance and salvation. But purge this person from among you. This inside-outside idea is irrefutable. The church is for believers alone. Now hold on to that thought. Not concluded there. But let me say, we walk into the doors of this church probably week in and week out. And we praise God for His grace to show us that the church is to be comprised of believers. But we fairly well take that for granted. We should not do that. We should not take that for granted. Let me tell you a true story. From the 4th century onward, the Catholic Church followed the novel idea that the church is coextensive with society and the church dispenses salvation to the citizens of the commonwealth. It's Christendom 
And the local church passes out salvation to those who identify with it. In this way of thinking, everyone in the surrounding parish of a Catholic church belongs to the church by virtue of their mailing address. That's where you live. You're in the church. If you attend church, if you willingly receive the sacraments from the church, you are a Christian. Belonging was everything. And genuine belief became increasingly rare under this system. Because people were routinely told, you go to the church to get your salvation. You willingly participate in the Lord's Supper and you'll be gaining salvation by belonging to the church. This state of affairs held sway in Europe for over a thousand years. Now, there were many who didn't believe it, but they weren't the ones driving the ship. The reformers of the 16th century brought fresh vigor to the true doctrine of salvation. Salvation, they said, is not through the church. The church does not dispense salvation. Jesus does. And only by going to Christ, only through faith alone, are we ever able to come to regeneration. The problem is they did not find a way to break free from this sacral system of Rome. That is, the Reformers established Protestantism. They replaced Catholicism with Protestantism in the regions that they took over. So in that commonwealth, this is now a Protestant commonwealth, and guess what they did? They thought the same way about the parish. Whoever comes to the church is a Christian and participates in the Christian way of life, and particularly in the Lord's Supper. So if you belong to the community, you technically belonged to the church by virtue of your mailing address, where you lived. Indeed, the Reformers' theology assumed that the local church would have believers and unbelievers in it. And they chided the Anabaptists for not accepting this reality. You people think you're playing God. The church will always have believers and unbelievers. And of course, the Anabaptists responded and said, we know that, but we're not going to accept that as far as lies within us. Now, among the Reformers and the Protestants, There were attempts to deal with the unconverted and to exercise discipline. But these attempts were severely compromised by this parish system. I mean, think about it. We've got Joe Neighbor down the road here. Really not a bad guy. He he has a lot of vices, and he is clearly unregenerate, but he's a very good neighbor overall. Now, as we look at his life, we know that he's unregenerate, but he comes to the church and he takes the Lord's Supper and he he identifies with the church. And he's, here's our problem as a Protestant church. If we realize that he is not redeemed, he's not regenerate, we don't put him out of the church. We put him out of the commonwealth. We have to send this man and his family packing for a whole nother district somewhere else that's pretty tough to do when you've got a contributing perhaps even respected citizen in the town to send them away is very difficult and so many weren't sent away they were truly unregenerate 
but they were participating in the Protestant churches. As you might expect, this caused great grief to those who were regenerate within the churches. The reformers didn't know how to take care of it. They couldn't get it fixed. Martin Luther was so frustrated by his own practice of administering communion to those he knew were unconverted in his parish that he once said in a sermon that he found the matter, quote, not very unlike chucking it down the gullet of a sow. Leave it to Luther to say it straight and remove all doubt. You see his problem. He knows that he's giving the Lord's Supper to people who are unredeemed. He doesn't know how to deal with it. He doesn't know how to fix it. Now enter in at this point, not enter in in time, but enter in in theme. These people have been around for a long while. But by contrast, the evangelical Anabaptists of the day gathered churches of only regenerate members who freely entered covenant with one another. So they live in a parish, and they say, do you know Christ as Savior? Yes, do you know Christ as Savior? They, they give evidence of that. They gather a church together that chooses to covenant together as a church of redeemed people. So you're in this group of people not because of your mailing address. You're in this group of people because of the conversion of your soul. You've been redeemed by Christ and you covenant to live together. Now, you can imagine how upset the Protestants got with this practice. You have this whole parish with all kinds of unregenerate people in it, and now you've got a group running around gathering the best out of that parish, bringing these believers together, which increases the the percentage of people who are unregenerate in your church. And the reformers, now let's remember, everybody used really hard words back then. But they really got critical of the Anabaptists. They charged them with perfectionism. You're looking for a perfect church where there's no sinners. They charge them with unloving discipline. You send people out of the assembly in too harsh of a way. They, they charge them with a lack of love for the spiritually weak. There might have been some truth in that. They also charge them with sedition. Say, sedition? Well, think of it. They're gathering believers out of the parishes and harming the commonwealth, in in their view, in in the Protestants' view. And even Protestant authors today acknowledge that these charges were largely false. What was at issue? The Anabaptists were saying that the church of Jesus Christ is comprised of believers. And we're not going to pretend that it's anything else because that's what God's Word teaches. That's what have we not seen again here today what Ephesians teaches. What the book of Acts in its initial stages begins to lay out. They were added to their number. And we see this consistently through the New Testament text. The Anabaptists knew that the church of Jesus was comprised of genuine believers and they knew this. To quote one, they knew the difference between falling into sin and living in it. So, Eden Baptist Church, let's come back to today. And leave our story a bit in the past, but I hope it brings us to a greater appreciation. Because do we realize 
that as we walk into this church and know that the membership is comprised of regenerate people, do we realize there were people who died for that doctrine? They died. Because Roman and Protestant churches believed that society was coextensive with the church, they believed that the civil authorities were given to them to exercise church discipline. People were killed because they argued for regenerate church membership. May we not forget. But let's come to today. Let's come back to that gnawing question. If the church is comprised only of believers, what about unbelievers? How can Eden Baptist Church welcome the lost among us while at the same time making it clear that they really do not belong to us? We want to welcome them in. We want them to see our life. We want them to hear the Word of God proclaimed. But how do we do that and not send the message that they belong to the church? How can Eden Baptists welcome unbelievers into our midst while maintaining the fundamental distinction between those who attend the church as unregenerate and those who are born again? May I suggest that the only effective answer is the practice of official church membership. It's the only way you can do it. Membership which excludes those who cannot give sufficient evidence that they are born-again followers of Jesus. It doesn't exclude them from living among us, but it excludes them from identifying with the church as members of the body of Christ. It is true that a local church cannot infallibly determine whether a person is truly regenerate. So we hear that objector, as we mentioned earlier, who says, you don't know. They don't have a halo over their head. How can you tell somebody they're not a believer? Well, I would answer that and say, we better do our best. Because that's how Jesus sees the church. And yes, we will not be infallible. We are not God. We cannot read hearts. But we're going to do the best we can. We have had people come to say, I would like to join the membership of Eden Baptist Church. And we've asked them, how do you know that you have been redeemed? Explain to us what you are trusting in for salvation. And I've heard these stories. A story is then given about how they had a spiritual experience. Something traumatic happened and God seemed to be very close. I remember one telling me I was healed of an illness. Now, in God's common grace, He can make His presence known to an unbeliever. I'm not going to argue against that. But having an experience, walking an aisle, praying a prayer, reading a verse that seemed to make sense, gaining a sense of the presence of God, being healed of an illness, none of that is salvation. It might be, on some level, some evidence or indication of the presence of God, such as the skies that declare His glory every day, but it's not salvation because you had an experience. What are you trusting in, we ask, and must continue to ask that question. 
What are the evidences that what Paul is saying to the Ephesian believers is true of you, that once you were lost in the darkness of sin, but now God in His mercy has saved you and redeemed you from your sins and given you life in Christ? What evidence is there of that in your life? If there's no evidence... What are we doing when we bring such a person into the church's membership and say, you belong? We are destroying the very gospel witness they need. That's not love. That's a church that doesn't want to offend. Or that's a church that just wants to get bigger. If we love people, we will do investigation to seek as far as humanly possible whether or not they are saved. And God warn us, if we permit people to come into our assembly and to belong to our church who do not know Christ as Savior, there will be dire consequences for our assembly and for the witness of the gospel of Christ. We're not perfect. We can't read minds. But listen to the words of Gregory Will who draws an apt illustration, when he says, perfect antisepsis in surgical operations is impossible, but that is no argument for neglecting to sterilize operating rooms. The persistence of a few germs is no reason to perform surgery in the sewer. The attempt at antisepsis improves the outcome considerably. You see the point. We will not know always when a person is not genuinely born again. But we need to try to determine that up front. And so what does Scripture teach us? What have we come to understand? Believing before belonging is utterly essential if we hope to bring our church into conformity to God's design. If we hope to see it the way that God sees it. You are saints. You are identified with Christ. You are the faithful You are the body of Christ building itself up in love. That's who comprises the church. That's not who attends the church. We welcome unbelievers among us, but we must insist that belief comes before belonging. And secondly, belonging after belief is crucial to our growth as Christians. We welcome the lost, but we do not give them the false sense that they belong to the body of Christ until they do through regeneration. And we screen members coming into our assembly by hearing their testimonies, by seeking to find evidences of genuine faith in their life so as not to permit them to come into the assembly, into the membership of the church, and so to corrupt its spiritual purity while at the same time not making clear to them that they need to respond to the gospel. And this is why, thirdly, we discipline members who live in unrepentant sin. Because the purpose of our salvation and the pleasure of God is that we live in purity together, building ourselves up as sinners, but building ourselves up so that we are conformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. May God give us grace against objections and against resistance to be faithful to this calling, to maintain the circle of the world, 
and the church and to do all that we can to preserve the church as a community of believers. Unbelievers walking among us, but only believers permitted into the circle of the membership of the body of Christ. Only they can be members of the visible body of Christ because only they are members of the universal body of Christ. Let's never forget. And let's thank God for what He's shown us. Let's pause in prayer. Father, by Your mercies alone, we come to such understanding. By Your grace alone, we come to saving faith. There may be some among us, perhaps even members of our church, who do not know Christ as Savior. They have not been redeemed. I plead for anyone in that condition today that You would bring them to a place of repentance and trust in Christ. I pray, Father, that they would come to embrace this message and know that their sins can be forgiven to know who Jesus is and to embrace Him as Lord and Savior. For those of us who are in the body of Christ, Father, I thank You for the privilege that is ours. For those that are not members of the physical body, I pray that You'd move them to that place in Your time, in Your way, as You see fit, but that they would be open and moving in that direction. For those of us who are members of this body, we rejoice to know what You have done and pray that we will build one another up in the faith. Thank You for the faith, for belief, and thank You for belonging to a body of believers that seeks purity and holiness and faithfulness. God, we fall short, but we ask that You'll continue to deepen this assembly and bless us for Your glory and honor. Through Christ, I pray. Amen.